Hey folks, welcome to the AABIP podcast. This is Samir Adasarala from Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine in Cleveland, Ohio. I'm your host for today's episode. Thank you all for joining us today. It'll be a wonderful discussion about a condition that we won't see every day, but you may be called upon to assist with, pulmonary alveolar proteinosis. Today, we're very fortunate to have Dr. Tisha Wang join us. She's a clinical director and VP of the Patient-Based Pulmonary Alveolar Proteinosis Foundation and is chair of education committee for the American Thoracic Society. She's also a professor of clinical medicine in the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA and a clinical chief of division of pulmonary critical care and sleep medicine in the UCLA Department of Medicine. Welcome, Tisha. Thanks, Samira. It's great to be on this with you. Thanks for the oh. opportunity. Awesome. Tisha, before we get started, do you have any relevant conflicts of interest to disclose? I don't. Um, I do consult um, for partner therapeutics and am a PI on a trial for PAP, but I don't think either one of those have relevant uh, disclosures for this uh, conversation. Great. Just as a reminder, the views expressed on this podcast are those of the speaker in mind and not necessarily endorsed by the AABIP. With the formalities done, let's get started. So PAP is a rare diffuse lung disease that often presents with dyspnea and leads to respiratory failure. At times, bronchoscopic procedures are performed for the diagnosis and treatment. Although lengthy, a whole lung lavage can have dramatic impact on the patient's quality of life. Like many things within our field, there's variability in how this procedure is actually done. But let's find out more from our expert. Tisha, at your shop, how do patients with PAP typically end up on your radar? Yeah, it's a good question, Samir. So, and, you know, typically, um, you know, in this area, I've become um, a known expert in this condition. So certainly in the Southern California region um, and definitely at UCLA, um, if people get a diagnosis of PAP via biopsy or um, via a blood test, they typically mm -hmm. get referred to me with a diagnosis. Um, I often will also get uh, queries on a regular basis from my um, colleagues and faculties, you know, with a CT scan saying, hey, Tisha, do you think this is consistent with PAP? What diagnostic testing should we pursue? And then honestly, across the country through the PAP Foundation and just a lot of awareness we've done um, on the Internet, um, a lot of people actually now get referred to me from, I would say, even this region of the United States as a known PAP expert. Sure. Um, so probably once or twice a month, I'll get a phone call from either a patient or a outside physician asking for advice on how to treat PAP um, as I've, you know, kind of gotten my name out there as someone who's very interested in uh, moving uh, this disease forward uh, progress wise. So. So Tisha, this is, you know, a fairly rare, rare entity. I'm curious, how'd you get so tied in with, with PAP and what really started your career off with this? You know, this is a funny story. I could talk about this for, for five or 10 minutes, but you know, so I was a fellow at UCLA um, and my um, program director and mentor actually had an interest in this disease. And so when I was in training, he trained me how to do whole lung lavage. Um, and I was one of the few fellows that he actually trained um, to do whole lung lavage. And when he left, um, when I was a senior fellow, I basically adopted that position at UCLA where I was the one who knew how to do all the lung lavages. And I really mm -hmm. liked the patient population. Um, and during fellowship, I had a patient um, who was dying of this condition, needed a lung lavage every month or two, and she was around my age. And so I wanted to do something um, different to try to save her. And I went into the literature and actually put her on um, subcutaneous GM-CSF therapy 
And she literally went from someone who was in a wheelchair needing a lung transplant to someone who was completely cured. And so then I became very interested in, in treating this um, condition with other, you know, sort of therapeutics. Um, and when I was very uh, young, a junior attending, actually, I got invited to um, be a rare lung visiting uh, professor, actually, at the University of Cincinnati at their rare lung disease consortium and met Ruth Trapnell, who's sort of the nationwide scientific expert on PAP. And so I just mm -hmm. accumulated this patient population. I published on it. I perfected whole lung lavage. Um, and then later on, actually found a patient uh, partner here and kind of revamped the PAP um, foundation. So um, it's been a, a long journey. I have to talk about the long version of this story um, in, in grand rounds that I give. But uh, it, it started when I was a fellow trying to save a patient who was my age who had this disease and needed a lung lavage every month or two. Yeah, it's super interesting for uh, these podcasts that we do. And I have the opportunity to talk to all these experts uh, across the globe. And I, I call these, I, I've, I've coined these origin stories of, of where they get interested in their specific topics. So that's awesome to hear. Thank you for sharing with that for us. Um, you know, a, a common request in uh, patients suspected to have PAP is for bronchoscopy. I think we can all agree that it's not always required. Uh, so for someone who sees these patients more frequently than I would, I would say most of us do, what boxes need to be checked uh, prior to a patient undergoing bronchoscopy for a diagnosis of PAP? Yeah, you know, you know, I think a bronchoscopy with uh, lavage is fairly low risk. And so I'm not opposed to doing it for most patients with PAP, but you can diagnose this um, with a simple blood test. I mean, the anti-GMCSF antibody um, blood test is actually almost 100% sensitive and specific as a, as a test for this condition. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, I just saw a patient um, probably in the last month who I diagnosed via the blood test and actually he had such mild disease, we decided to completely forego bronchoscopy at all. Um, so it is something that, that you can easily diagnose with a blood test if you have clinical suspicion. I think if you do a bronchoscopy, which again, I'm not completely opposed to it, all you really need to do is a BAL and send it for cytology for sort of the, the PAS staining um, to get a diagnosis. I don't think most of the time you need biopsies and certainly you don't need um, surgical lung biopsies, but um, people forget, I think that this is as simple as, as being diagnosed on a, on a blood test that you can send to, um, in the US, you can send it to the University of Cincinnati or you can send it to a National Jewish. So it is a send out, which I think is a little bit more of a barrier, um, but otherwise it's a test that's 100% good basically for this condition. Yeah, you don't see too many tests with uh, that degree of percentages as far as specificity is concerned. Um, I, I typically have been approaching these cases about you know, doing the bronchoscopy to help rule out other things or see if there's anything else going on uh, in addition to getting these tests kind of going. Is there any scenario in which you would consider surgical lung biopsy in these patients? You know, Samir, I, in my entire career of managing dozens and dozens of PAP patients and giving advice, I have actually never um, requested a surgical lung biopsy for the diagnosis of PAP. So if you look at PAP as a syndrome, about 90% of them are going to be autoimmune PAP. Um, and that is the, you know, what that blood test is, is 100% good for, for diagnosing that 90%. Mm -hmm. um, the vast majority of the other cases are going to be secondary PAP, and you can usually find, you know, an etiology for that. Um, you know, do they work, you know, with silica? Do they have myelodysplasia syndrome? Do they have an immune deficiency? Um, so you almost never need one. Now, if you look at the PAP registry, the research registry we set up with Cincinnati, um, two thirds of the patients actually had a lung biopsy during diagnostic workup, about 
40% had a surgical one, about 40% had a transbronchial, and actually 10% had both. Sure. Um, the important thing here is that 10% of those biopsies didn't even find PAP. So again, if you have a population of, you know, 100 patients and 90% of them you can get with a lung biopsy, I'm sorry, 90% of patients you can get with the um, testing, with the blood mm -hmm. testing, you're really only left with 10%. And probably of that 10%, 9 out of 10, you can find a secondary etiology. Um, so again, I, I've never actually sent someone for a, a, a surgical lung biopsy. I think if I felt like I needed a biopsy because it wasn't autoimmune PAP, um, and I couldn't find a secondary cause, I probably would favor a transbronchial or even a cryobiopsy, even though sure. there's not a lot of good data before getting a surgical lung biopsy. At your shop, is there some sort of MDD for patients with PAP or they all come through you? You have a specific template you go through and check all the boxes and get them on the right therapy. That's a great question. We have an MDD for um, for our interstitial lung disease program, which sometimes I think patients can actually go through with features of, of PAP, in which case I'll participate. Um, but most of the time, I just get sent you know, an email or even a picture of a CT scan um, asking me if I think this is consistent with PAP. And again, it's so easy for us to send a blood test mm -hmm. that oftentimes I'll just you know help them send a blood test. And if the blood test comes out positive, there's your diagnosis. You don't have to do anything more. Or sometimes I'll say, well, you maybe you want to rule out infection in this case because of the clinical scenario. Maybe you want to look at, you know, malignancy, et cetera, et cetera. So there's not an MDD as much as it's just a, a consultation through, um, you know, through me. Um, I have another um, sort of expert here. Her name is Eleanor Lee, who also sees these rare lung disease patients at UCLA. Um, but very occasionally we'll go through the um, interstitial lung disease MDD. Sure, it makes sense. Uh, the, it's probably the, the best MDD that fits into, so it makes sense. So are, are you the only one doing whole lung lavage at the, at the UCLA hospitals? Um, I trained um, Dr. Eleanor Lee, who's kind of my scientific uh, counterpart. So she's an MD-PhD who does research in PAP, but she also has been trained in whole lung lavage. Um, but yeah, I always joke that the interventional pulmonologists have it nice at UCLA because I do, I do them all. <laughs> um, I do train, um, when possible, the interventional pulmonary fellows to do it. But I think when we built an IP program, I had already done hundreds of lung lavages here. And so I just kind of kept it under my shop. And honestly, with a lot of people nowadays on clinical trials or therapy therapies, we're not doing them as frequently as we used to. I used to probably do one or two lung lavages a month. And now it's probably, you know, one to two lung lavages every quarter or two, you know. So the, yeah. volume, the volume has gone down quite a bit. Uh, on the, the rare end of uh, procedures indeed. So uh, Tisha, walk me through your lavage process. Everyone does it differently. I want to I wanna pick your brain of how you're doing it there. Everybody does do it differently. There was even a paper saying that everybody does it differently. <laughs> um, I have refined the process a lot over the years um, and have gotten a lot of input actually. There was a guy in Denver and actually a physician in the UK that had probably the only two people in the um world that I ever met that had done more lung lavages than me. So I asked them for their uh, procedure as well and tried some of their tips. Um, but this is kind of what I've landed on. Um, so infusion via gravity, okay. um, removal of the fluid through suction, through wall suction, which I know is not always done, but I've tried to remove it via gravity um, and re remove it via suction. I think suction actually works um, better and I've never had a complication from the suction itself. Um, double lumen ETT um, with 
um, a lot of care to get that double lumen ETT in the right place and very secure. So I'll be frank with you. I only will agree to do this with very specific thoracic anesthesiologists sure. at UCLA because it is, you know, most of the time it's semi-elective. Um, we use warm saline. So the patients will get hypothermic. We use a bear hugger. I use a Foley because I give them Lasix at the end to help them extubate, which has actually worked quite well. Um, I do not use I do not use any type of um, hemodynamic monitoring, so they don't need an arterial line or anything like that. Um, patients are kept flat. Um, I have sometimes used a pneumo vest um, if they're stable enough, meaning that um, again the thing I worry about moving them too much is that ET two being dislodged, which is the worst thing that can happen during a case. Yep. Um, but if they're stable, I'll have the pneumo vest turned on actually during the procedure. Um, and I basically keep track of what, you know, goes in via our three liter bags. We put in, you know, probably anywhere between 800 cc's um, and a liter for each fill, you know, one lung at a time, suction all the fluid out, um, again, via suction. And then um, every three liters or so, we have the canisters, we line them up like the classic pictures that you see on the internet. Um, and when the fluid is clear, which can be anything between 15 and right 40 liters. Um, we basically keep track of all the fluid that we've drained out um, by suctioning it up via a Neptune and we calculate what went in and what came out basically. Um, so I always do one lung at a time. I've actually never done two lungs in one day. Um, I used to try doing it on consecutive days, but funny enough, I found that they did better when you just let them completely recover because obviously mm -hmm. they're gets worse before it gets better. And then you have to ventilate that lung. So I usually send them home um, often on the same day. So oftentimes I'll bring them in at seven in the morning and they'll be home by the afternoon. Um, if a patient's very sick on oxygen at baseline, I'll actually keep them in house to diarrhea them overnight. Um, but otherwise a lot of the patients are now sort of outpatient um, procedures. If you start in the morning um, and then I will bring them back for their other lung um, in two to four weeks. And um, occasionally they'll actually tell you they're doing so good. They don't even want the other lung washed out. And so sometimes mm -hmm. you end up just washing one out and then you're good for you know months to years. So what uh, what made you kind of decide on gravity to, to get the fluid? And have, have you used a rapid infusion in the past and um, gravity just seemed better? I'm, I'm curious to, to hear your thoughts. You know, we actually never use the rapid infusion. I guess I'm not in theory against it, but the, the gravity thing that we set up um, is actually really fast. Like we set up um, pretty large tubing actually. And so I guess it's never really slowed us down. And so I never really even thought to use a rapid infuser. Um, we're able to finish a case really pretty fast here. So I think from, you know, as long as the you know, patient's completely anesthetized and we start filling, it probably takes about 90 minutes, maybe two hours to do a case. Okay. Um, so it, it hasn't really been an issue with, with timing as long as we, again, suction out the fluid via wall suction. So, but that's an idea. That's something I've never actually considered and would be willing to do if it really is much faster, but we don't find the, the gravity system. You just put the bags really high up on these IV poles and it usually flows in very quickly. Sure. With, uh, with the double lumen endotracheal tubes, are these uh, the traditional ones or some of the newer ones that, that have the camera that you can see the airway? Uh, uh, they're the traditional ones. Obviously, we have a, a scope of the camera in the OR, but no, they're the they're the traditional ones. Um, interestingly, our anesthesiologist is is trying to design one that actually works much better because we do a whole lot of lung, whole lung lavages. Um, to be a little bit more, I think, sturdy. But I, I think that we've been just using the the old-fashioned double-limit ET tubes. 
So that uh, that that process, I, I can relate to most of those things. It, it sounds uh, fairly typical to uh, what I learned to do uh, during training, um, with some differences about you know if the patients stay overnight, get lungs done on back to back days versus going home and coming back later. What are your thoughts on sequentially lavaging segments with a traditional bronchoscope? I, I've seen that done from time to time. And by seeing it's reports uh, done at referring institutions. Um, what, what are your thoughts on that? There's a few case reports. I've thought about it um, in ICU patients that are really sick and you worry about taking them right down to the operating room, putting them in our general anesthesia, and then completely only ventilating them on one lung. Um, but I've not gone past thinking about it. In fact, I was talking with my interventional pulmonologist about a case and I was like, oh, maybe I'll try this thing in the ICU where you used to do sequential lodging. And I think her comment to me was like, I'll see you tomorrow because you're still going to be at the bedside lodging the segments. And so I, I think it probably would be time consuming, but I guess I've never had a situation where, and I've had patients that are you know intubated with this, that get brought from outside hospitals um, where we were unable to, lavage one lung in the traditional way, which I think is more efficient and probably more high yield. Um, you can probably get more thorough washing with the method that we use in the OR. Um, oftentimes what we will have to do with those really sick patients is just ventilate them on both lungs in between the fills, which does make the case go on longer. Sure. Uh, but I think in the, I think if your back's against the wall and you have a really sick patient at the ICU, I, I'm not against doing the sequential lavage. I think it really is just a, an efficiency issue. So uh, kind of talking uh, along the same lines uh, with patients that uh, are potentially in the ICU and, and very ill, uh, what are your thoughts on doing this on someone on VV ECMO support? So there was one patient actually who was so sick, ventilated in very high settings, were actually called um, ECMO um, again as, as backup, um, you know, before I even went into the OR. Thankfully, we didn't have to use it. Um, and so I think that if you absolutely needed to do it to save a patient's life, I think absolutely you should do it because the patients will improve with whole lung lodge pretty quickly. Um, with that said, we've been able to, to do these really sick patients, um, with the method of fill, empty, ventilate, fill, empty, ventilate. Um, and again, you just get into a rhythm and it does make the case probably twice as long. Um, but perhaps, you know, having a four hour lung lavage where you have to ventilate in between, you know, one, every one to two fills is probably better than putting someone on VV ECMO. So again, we've never had to do it, but I think if it was life or death, I would absolutely support doing it. And asking um, you, since you have a lot of experience with this procedure, what are your thresholds with when you start to get worried with uh, you know, SpO2 and other things that you're measuring uh, through the procedure? Um, it's a good question, actually. As you probably know, you know, when you empty, that's when the the saturations often are the lowest. Mm -hmm. And then you get nervous about filling because, you know, now your saturations are low. But as we also know, when you fill, because the blood shunts away from the lung that you're filling, you often get um, improvement in oxygenation. Right. Um, and so, I mean, it depends, of course, on the patient, but oftentimes I'll tolerate, right, a saturation in the mid to low 80s at the end of the section, because I know that once I feel it's probably going to go back right into the high 80s, low 90s. Um, and many of these patients are on oxygen chronically, and so they're probably 
um, somewhat acclimated to saturations in the 80s. If it's, you know, going to go below the the 80s, I typically will just stop and, and ventilate them back up, give them a little bit of pee, ventilate them with two lungs before I go back and refill. Yeah, it's always uh, something we keep a close eye on, and it's uh, partially counterintuitive how we, uh, we have a degree of comfort with emptying and filling, and, and know the SpO2 is going to kind of improve when we think it's going to get worse and, and vice versa. So with these patients that have this procedure done and they tolerate it great, they're, they're going home to whatever that may be, since you have a broad referral base, how are you following up on them? Do you tell them to see you in clinic in, in a couple of weeks or just call in and make an appointment when they're short of breath? Uh, what, what's your follow-up plan? I try to see them within two to four weeks of, um, you know, getting the lung lavage, I find that patients really do well after the lung lavage. And so oftentimes I'll tell them to follow up with me in two to four weeks and I often won't even see them for three to four months. Um, and they will come back feeling great. Obviously it depends on the severity of their disease and how quickly their protein reaccumulates. Mm -hmm. um, but I typically ask them to see me in two to four weeks and then typically I'll order PFT to that visit for their next visit. Um, but I find that a lot of patients actually kind of get a little bit lost to follow up simply because they're feeling well. And for the first time they're able to do X, Y, and Z. And so they feel like they don't need to come to see you until you, you know, have your office call them. But, but yeah, typically two to four weeks is my, is my time frame. Sure. Yeah, that, that makes sense. So Tisha, time for closing remarks. Anything you feel we left out that's important to discuss? No, you know, I mean, I think the thing that I would say to the interventional pulmonary community, you know, is that. Yeah, this disease can be diagnosed with a um, with a blood test, um, and I think that um, if you do accumulate a patient population um, because of you know having to do frequent lavages, um, you should either find a a, a partner, a pulmon pulmonary partner who is really interested in treating these patients, or you know I think a handful of interventional pulmonologists may also be interested in in you know, the therapeutic side of this as well, outside of whole lung lavage. Mm -hmm. um, I've been trying to get, you know, people more and more interested, but I think the bottom line is that, you know, the reason that I've stayed in, in rare lung disease, in the rare lung disease space, even though I've gotten quite busy in my day job, is that this is a patient population that really needs more awareness and needs more physicians um, that are experts in their condition, you know? And so I think these patients that you will find, um, where it took forever to diagnose them, right? Diagnosis in the literature takes over a year for the vast majority of these patients. And so they've right. been suffering for a long time. I always say it, it took over a year to, to get a diagnosis. Almost every patient has either felt or been told that they're crazy in some way, right? That they don't know what they have. This is a mm -hmm. new thing. I've been trying to treat your asthma. I don't know why it's not getting better. So by the time they get diagnosed, they're actually a little scared and a little lonely. And now they're like, oh, I have a diagnosis. But now they realize that like, I have a rare diagnosis. I don't know anyone with this diagnosis. The doctors seem not to know about the diagnosis. And so it's the reason that we created the, the patient-based PAP foundation, because now the patients can meet others with their condition who have done quite well. And then our goal is to connect the um, patient community with physicians that actually have some experience and some expertise in, in PAP. Um, and um, the foundation has been going from site to site to do patient education days and grand rounds and things like that. Because I think my ultimate goal is that I want these patients to get diagnosed timely and to be um, given all the opportunities for whether it's treatment trials or the latest therapeutics 
or being able to get a whole long lavage by someone who's done them before. Sure. Um, I have a ton of stories, Samir, from all the years of people getting lung lavages at outside hospitals from people that had never done the procedure before watching on YouTube and they got a new almost died. You know, there's just a lot of stories when you've been in the space for a long time. And so it, it, it's ideal, I think for patients to be able to get connected with other patients um, as well as the physician community that really cares about this patient population. Yeah. The foundation certainly sounds like a very uh, important endeavor for a group of patients uh, dealing with a diagnosis that uh, I would say a majority of pulmonologists uh, don't come across, or if they do, it's quite rare outside of a few exceptions, of course. Uh, Tisha, that, that was amazing. I really appreciate the opportunity to uh, pick your brain about this, and I'm sure our learners uh, have, have learned a ton. Uh, listen to your expertise uh, about this very rare condition. I appreciate your time. Yeah, no, thanks so much, Mira. I love I love talking about PAP. I love talking about the rare lung disease space, and so um, yeah, it's been it's been great to spend some time with you. And uh, please. Uh, let all the IP community know that we're um, definitely happy to help if there's any PAP patients that, that cross our path. We certainly will. Thank you, Tisha. All right. Thanks so much, Samir.